Welcome to part two of our voyage into How Do You Sleep? This episode addresses George Harrison's role in both the creation of the song and more generally his perspective on Lennon-McCartney as a unit. My first inkling of what the song was about was hearing John singing it through as we're learning it. I thought, my God, you're not really going to record this. <laughs> because it was obvious who it was about. I thought, you can't be serious, you know, these are probably just joke lyrics and you're going to modify it. No, he didn't. The other players were thinking the same things, but as did Nicky, they wisely kept their opinions to themselves. We were all just looking at each other. I don't even think George commented on it. And I thought, this is interesting. Here's George playing along and taking great pains on the solo to get it right. And I thought, now, this, how is this going to affect the relationship that George has with Paul? whatever that is or was. I mean, I knew there was a rift, obviously. Everybody knew there was the rift between John and Paul at that point, but I thought, now, this is going to surely reflect a little badly on George. And I thought, is George going to ref refuse to play on this track? But no, he didn't. I guess he thought, well, this is John's trip, and that's up to him. It's up to these two guys to sort their, their feud out. The Beatles were a complex machine made up of four human beings, and obviously there's plenty we don't know about their inner lives and also about their interpersonal dynamics. But we're going to do our best to dissect what appears to be going on and to be fair and sensitive to everyone involved. So there's this idea in fandom that George hated Paul because Paul was such a tyrant and John, on the other hand, really respected George. And this is why George and John teamed up on How Do You Sleep because they were both so righteous in their anger against Paul's monstrous behavior towards George. No, <laughs> <laughs> that, that is not what happened. So let's take this point by point. I think it's pretty well known what George's beef with Paul was musically. So by late Beatles era, Paul doesn't hear in three chords. Yeah. You know? He hears in full surround sound with all the instruments and the full arrangement, and he knows what he wants, and he's capable of producing it in the studio, and he could even produce it by himself, as he proves with his first album. Yeah. Right? That is a very cool, amazing, staggering thing about Paul. And as we all know, his first solo album was entirely him, playing all the instruments, doing the arrangements, creating this entire soundscape on his yeah. own. Very cool. Amazing. Right? Yes. What an innovator. Right. What a genius. Yes. Right? He's amazing. Mm-hmm. However, it's <laughs> not a cool position for George to be in as Paul's bandmate yeah. because... At that point, Paul didn't really want George's creative input. And Paul had already written the guitar part in his head when he had a new song. And understandably, George felt frustrated and a bit insulted by this. You know, even even in like the mid-60s, I think Paul was getting more and more forceful and specific about what he wanted. Yeah. But by Let It Be, he was definite about exactly what he wanted George to play. Mm -hmm. And George was no longer interested in just being treated like a session musician. That is 100% reasonable. Yeah. Right? I don't think anyone could rationally blame George for having a problem with that. Right. Because he's in a band, and yeah. the band is democratic, and 
you know. But on the other hand, I also wouldn't expect Paul to sacrifice his vision just to share George's feelings. Right. I mean, they're not a garage band. Right. Right? They're like, (laughs) they're a big deal. And Paul takes his work seriously. And he puts in a lot of time and effort and he wants it to be right. So I think they're just at an impasse, unfortunately. Right, so, and there's there's nothing really to do about that except to part and go your separate ways. So I think George felt that Paul didn't value him as a musician, which hurt his feelings. So I get that part. Mm-hmm. And I think this is why George said he would never play in a band with Paul again. And frankly, I don't see what's so terrible about that statement. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, honestly, it was probably mutual. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, if if the crux of the matter is that Paul doesn't want George's input, then you know, do the math. I'm sure <laughs> Paul was not dying to have George come on and be at his band again. Right. Except that, like, Paul would never say that. No. But certainly not in public. Yeah. I think that Paul usually wanted to take the high road, and people often dwell on what George said. There is some great evidence that Paul was just such a horrible person that George couldn't stand him. Well, I mean, in the same breath, like, I think he said I'd never play in a band with him again. And that he said, I mean, I don't have any problem with him personally. Like, we're still friends. And like, you know. It's almost like that remark just completely goes over people's heads. Yeah. It's like. Mm -hmm. Well, no shit they don't want to. He doesn't want to play in a band with Paul. I mean, they they fucking broke up. Like, why is anybody shocked about that? (laughs) Of course not, you know. (laughs) Whereas, I I do think that John, since he couldn't, in his own words, couldn't hear the flutes, (laughs) was much more open to people's musical suggestions and input. Because, as we discussed in a previous episode, John was not much of a leader in that sense. Like, never Mm -hmm. was. Yeah. Right? He didn't he didn't direct the musicians. And even in the film footage of the How Do You Sleep session, Yoko's directing the band. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's not John. He's not a band leader. Right. Actually, like there's a lot of studio outtakes of the Beatles where like Ringo is kind of asking him like, oh, what do you want on this? He's like, I don't know, man. Feel it like the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So he's just kind of telling him, like, do something and figure it out. Which is cool. Yeah. And it's fine. But it's like, that's his style. And it's always going to be like, he's not, that's not what he does. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's yeah, not, it's not his wheelhouse. He doesn't wake up with full arrangements in his head. Right. He, he gets an idea and then he, people help him flesh it out. And, you know, mostly Paul. And then when he was on his own, whatever, he'd, he'd do the song and then Phil Spector would flesh it out or what, mm-hmm. you know, what, whatever. And I'm not saying that no one's ever helped Paul do anything. <laughs> I'm just right. saying, like, you know, it's different. They have a different MO and a different skill set. Yeah. I mean, John was often kind of vague in describing what he wanted because it was hard for him to articulate, right? Exactly. And we know from the testimony of both George Martin and Jeff Emmerich, I mean, they wrote books that yeah. were very detailed. And they articulated that most of the time... John had a hard time explaining the sound he wanted on his records. And in many cases, relied on Paul to advocate for him. Yeah. Or for George Martin to just be able to interpret, you know, 
make me sound like the color orange, <laughs> whatever that means, you know. <laughs> he usually relied on Paul as a translator to help that song come to life and would also, like, blame him if the entire Beatles production and George Martin and Jeff Emmerich couldn't bring to life what was in John's head. Right. He would blame Paul for that. Like he did, you know, when he said Paul would subconsciously sabotage Ugh. my best songs. It's like, well, how oh, is dude. Paul sab- How is Paul responsible for like? Didn't you write it? Weren't you there the whole time? Didn't George <laughs> Martin produce it. Well, why is it Paul's fault? Right. It's like in his mind, Paul is the Paul's just the center of the universe, and like he controls everything. So it's like if something goes wrong, then surely it must be Paul's fault, or you know, right. Paul doesn't want me to succeed or something. I don't know. I think also Paul works at a sort of a breakneck speed. Yeah. That could be intimidating to everybody. Oh, my God, yes. You know? Yeah, he's just on all the time. <laughs> and, like, you you have to show up and, like, bring your A-game. Oh, yeah. And, like, if you don't, he's going to keep moving. Point being, it, it was possible, I think, for John to sympathize with George in this particular respect because he, too, was a less confident or decisive arranger and had also felt slighted by Paul and had been on the receiving end of Paul's criticisms or rewrites or directives or however you want to put it, you know. And so I think at some point... John was receptive to George's complaints about Paul and gave George the impression that he was on George's side. Mm-hmm. Um, however, mm. I think ultimately John was just manipulating George and basically using him as a pawn. And let me explain why. Uh, first of all, John was highly disrespectful towards George in public, repeatedly. Oh, yeah. I'd like to play a clip from Lennon Remembers in December of 1970. Remember that this is at the height of John's alleged hatred towards Paul, right? Mm, This period, this period of 70 and 71 is when John is ranting profusely about Paul to any and all media outlets. And this interview in particular is the foundation of that, you know, John was a lone genius who thought Paul was a hack narrative. Yep. Right? How that shit indifferent towards him. and was indifferent, yeah. Just suffered him for 10 years. Yeah. Like you do. Indifferently. And (laughs) also simultaneously angrily. Indifferent, throwing bricks through his window. But anyway. (laughs) So here's John from Lennon Remembers. I don't want to assess him, you know. George has not done his best work yet. His talents have developed over the years, and he, ha- he, he was working with two fucking brilliant songwriters, and he, had, he learned a lot from us. You know? And uh, I wouldn't mind it being George, the invisible man. And learning what he learned. And maybe it was hard sometimes for him, because Paul and I are such egomaniacs, but that's the game, you know. But so is George, you know, just give him a chance and he'll be the same, you know. So, I don't know, you know. I like, the best thing he's done is within you without you still, for me. 
I don't know, I can't assess his talents, you know, I, it's, he's not the kind of person I would buy the records of, you know, but I don't want to say this about him, I don't want it, you know, it'll hurt him, I don't want to hurt his feelings, but just personally, I, I think it's nothing, you know, I think something was a nice tune, but it doesn't mean anything to me, you know, I, I'm talking about, you know, not just rock and roll, just the, the universe or whatever, you know, I, I don't consider my talents fantastic compared with the fucking universe, but I consider George's less. So, yeah, he's pretty dismissive of George's talents. I'd say. unapologetic about how he and Paul treated him during the Beatles. Mm-hmm. I find that interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not, that kind of flies in the face of the narrative that I read all the time. Same. So, and then after that, George turned around and joined John to record How Do You Sleep, like six months after that. Mm. Mm. So, uh, but, you know, I don't know. That's George's choice. And everybody seems to forgive John for everything. So Yeah, true. Whatever. I guess that's a non-issue, right? Between (laughs) them. Okay, well, this is from a John and Yoko interview in September of 1971. This is an interview with Peter McCabe. At the St. Regis Hotel. Hmm. McCabe asks about George, who, again, has just recorded How Do You Sleep with John. Yes. Now, this one I'm going to have to read. Okay. Because I don't have any audio for it. Uh, Question. Let's talk a little about George. He's perhaps the most enigmatic Beatle. Are you saying George is more conventional than he makes himself out to be? John. There's no telling George. He always has a point of view about that wide, you know? John places his hands a few inches apart. You can't tell him anything. Yoko says, George is sophisticated fashion-wise. John says, he's very trendy and has all the right clothes and all of that. (laughs) Yoko says, but he's not sophisticated intellectually. Mm. John says, no, he's very narrow-minded and he doesn't really have a broader view. (laughs) Paul is far more aware than George. One time in the Apple office in Wigmore Street, I said something to George, and he said, I'm as intelligent as you, you know. (laughs) This must have been resentment, but he could have left any time if I was giving him a hard time. Question, what did you say? John, I didn't answer. Of course, he's got an inferiority complex working with Paul and me. (laughs) Yoko says, in the case of Paul, it's not that he's not sophisticated. I'm sure that he's intellectually sophisticated as well. It's just that he's aware, and yet he doesn't want to know. What? (laughs) John says, whereas George doesn't really know what's happening, you know. So George is just, like, brain damaged and wandering around, like, in a stupor. (laughs) Oh, yeah. George is clueless. Mm -hmm. Paul knows what's up. Yoko says Paul knows what's up, but he's stubborn. But John says, whereas George is just fucking clueless. (laughs) So it definitely sounds to me like John sees himself and Paul as superior to George. And ironically, that he still sees himself and Paul as a team. Yeah. Like he's still making the point to exclude George from their partnership. Even after it's been dissolved. Mm-hmm. And I think that is precisely the issue for George and always was. In fact, George has articulated it several times. Here he is in May 1970. This is almost immediately after the official breakup announcement, you know, in the McCartney press release. Mm-hmm. What was the conflict with Paul? I don't understand. Well, 
it's just the thing like you know he'd written all these songs for years and stuff and Paul and I went to school together you know I got the feeling that you know everybody changes and sometimes people don't want other people to change or they uh, even if you do change they won't accept that you've changed and they keep in their mind some other image of you you know Gandhi said create and preserve the image of your choice and so different people have different images of their friends or people they see. And, and so what was his image of you? Well, I got the impression it was like he still acted as if he was the groovy, you know, Lennon-McCartney. Because there was a point in my life where I realized anybody can be Lennon-McCartney, you know, because being part of Lennon-McCartney, really, I could see that... You know, I could appreciate them, how good they actually are. And at the same time, I could see the infatuation that the public had or the, the, the praise that was put on them. And I, I could see everybody's a Lennon-McCartney, if that's what you want to be. But, you know, I don't know if I'm explaining. The point is that, you know, there's nobody special. There's not many special people, you know, around. And if somebody else, if Lennon and McCartney are special, then Harrison and Starkey are special too. Now, that's really what I'm saying, is that uh, I can be Lennon and McCartney too, but I'd rather be Harrison, you know? All right, and here's George in 1974, after he and John have lost touch, mm-hmm. if not exactly fallen out. I mean, we could debate that, but here's George in 1974 attitude came over uh, which was John and Paul of um, you know okay you know were the grooves and you two just watch it not that they never said that or did anything but over a period of time you know I mean I could step off the stage being in the Beatles and go and talk to somebody who say John and Paul wouldn't talk to and uh, you know in a way I always felt a bit like an observer of the Beatles, even though I was with them. Whereas I think um, John and Paul were the stars of the Beatles. But like, this so well articulated by him, right? Yeah. So again, he's clearly stating that it's an issue of the two of them as a team, of their clannishness, mm-hmm. right? It's not yeah. Paul, it's John and Paul. Yep. John and Paul are the problem. Mm-hmm. And here he is in 1987. No one even asked about Paul at yeah, all. Yeah. <laughs> but when the interviewer presses George on what the personal issue was between John and George, mm. this is what George says. But he said that you idolized him as a young boy, <laughs> that you thought... Well, that's what he thought. And you didn't. Well, I liked him very much. He was He was a groove. He was a good lad. But at the same time... He misread me. He didn't realize who I was. And this was one of the main faults of, of John and Paul. They were so busy being John and Paul, they failed to realize who else was around at the time. So again, the problem is Lennon McCartney. The, the problem is that John and Paul value each other and themselves over everybody else. The problem is still for George. In 1987, mm-hmm. 
John and Paul's mutual obsession with each other and their eternal exclusivity. Yep. So it seems very clear to me that George's involvement in How Do You Sleep is rooted in his resentment of the impenetrable bond between John and Paul. It's the same thing that motivates him to write While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And I think that's why during the anthology, he was like, fuck no, to recording now and then. Yeah. (laughs) The last thing that he wants to do is play on some stupid mopey song of John, like, pining for Paul. Yeah. God, I'd rather fucking... Like, claw my eyes out with a fork <laughs> right. or something. It's like, then be caught in the middle of your fucking bullshit again. No. Right? right? He told yeah. Paul it was rubbish. Yeah. And Paul laughed. Right? <laughs> Paul, Paul didn't give a shit. So, in 1971, when John writes this song about how much Paul sucks... George must have been like, yes, finally. Have you come to your senses finally? Does the the sun no longer rise and set out of Paul's dumb cow eyes? (laughs) (laughs) You know, because to to my mind, it was probably more about separating John and Paul than it was even ever about Paul himself. I think that's exactly what it was. I mean, based on those three quotes, yeah. his overall behavior, while my guitar gently weeps, and everything else that we know about them, mm-hmm. I think George believes that John has an unhealthy attachment to or obsession with Paul. Oh, yeah. And he's happy to break it up. Mm-hmm. I mean, and maybe vice versa, too. Maybe Paul with John also. But, yeah. you know, anything to come between it he's gonna do because he's been vying for attention from both of them for so long and maybe he realizes on some level he can't get attention from both of them in tandem so he's gonna just get attention from the one he thinks he can get attention from yeah (laughs) and if it means you know ganging up on the other one so be it right Mm. but like the idea that George participated in this because he and John didn't love Paul as much as Paul loved them <laughs> is extremely shallow and stupid. It's like it, my five-year-old like <laughs> throws down his cereal and is like, you're a poopy head and <laughs> runs to his room like, oh, I guess he doesn't love me. <laughs> like what? That's about as deep as this analysis went. So stupid. stupid. It's like, that's the best you can do. Get out of here, man. <laughs> Dumb. Yeah, I think John, I think George loves Paul and John. Yeah. I mean, obviously all the Beatles love each other. Right. But what I'm saying is that I think George's objective with both John and Paul is to be loved and valued and respected as his own person and also as his own musician and like his own artist. Yeah. And his frustration with both of them is the same it's that he's not loved as much or doesn't feel loved as much as john and paul love each other mm-hmm. and it's just it's just basically that yep so 
So, you know, for whatever reason, George made his choice and he sided with John. Yep. And, you know, in thanks, John told Playboy in 1980 that George used to follow him around like a puppy in Liverpool. Mm. So, you know, did George make the right choice? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Right. Apple opened a new recording studio, apparently, in September of 1971, and they had a party to celebrate, Mm. and George was the only Beatle who attended. Mm. And there's a a little news clip here that says, At the gathering, George tells journalists of how this grand opening is tinged with sadness. Quote, It's a bit sad now that Apple is in the position all four of us planned three years ago. Mm. I just wish Paul would use the studio if he wants to. It's silly not to. Mm. But he admits... I can't see the four of us working together again, but I'd like us to be friends. Hmm. We all own the business, and it's doing well. I'd like all four of us to enjoy it now. Wow. End quote. So, sounds to me like he's already regretting it. Like, yeah, that was a quick turnaround. Uh, yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> it's like the record's not even out yet. Mm. Like, like, gee, George, I wonder why Paul doesn't want to use the studio. Right. I did find another, here's another interesting quote, just to sort of top this off. This is a clip from Lennon Remembers. My job, I maneuver people, you know, that's what leaders do, you know. And I make situations in which uh, benefit to me with other people. It's as simple as that. Oh, I I think we should cut that out. Why? That's the way you always feel, but actually you're... You're, you know, you can never... I am too. Yeah, well, okay, but, um, you know, I had I had to do a job to get Alan in Apple. Exactly. I did a job, so did you. You do it, you do it with instinct, you know. Well, it doesn't matter. Man- oh, God, Yoko, don't say that. Maneuvering is what it is. Let's not be coy about it. It's a deliberate mm-hmm. and, and thought-out maneuver of how to get a situation how we want it. That's how life's about, isn't it? So just to sort of wrap this storyline up, um, I wanted to share a story from May Ping's memoir, Loving John. Mm. So to set the stage, this occurs, this incident occurs around the time that the Beatles were signing the final dissolution of their contract as a band or what have you. Mm-hmm. in the end of 1974. I think it's essentially what Paul filed suit to accomplish at the yep. end of 1970, where he was like, let's just dissolve this shit. Yeah. So Split it up four ways, yeah. mm-hmm. and let's get the shit done. Um, because they wouldn't let him out of the contract. So he was like, all right, well, now it's in court and you're going to have to let me out and we're going to have to just cut this up four ways. And then I think for the next sort of three years, it was all about everybody's lawyers kind of arguing about details. Would you agree with that? Is that true? Yeah, that is an accurate assessment, yes. Okay. They're all kind of estranged at this point. Yeah. or I guess George is kind of estranged from both John and Paul at this point. Let's put it mm-hmm. that way. So he goes to visit John. And they sort of keep it light and friendly for a little bit. 
I'm just going to start reading it because... <laughs> Oof, it's, it's, it's a lot. Okay. It's a lot. <laughs> so here they are. They're at the house. Pleasantry, pleasantry. I'm glad you're with me. She's a lovely girl. And John's like, oh, I know she is. I'm glad you like her, etc. They hang out for an hour. May writes, John was determined to be open and friendly. George, however, seemed edgy, and all his replies were curt and had a hostile edge to them. A long mm. hour went by filled with off and on talk about the tour. That's George's tour that he's on, which wasn't mm. going so well. Yeah. Then John finally hinted that he would be willing to play with George when he appeared at Madison Square Garden. Well, maybe I can come and help you out, he said. Oh, boy. That'd be nice, George glowered at John. (laughs) Then George's anger really burst forth. Where were you when I needed you, he snapped. Wow. It was the first of a series of explosions, each of them followed by moments of tense silence. I did everything you said, but you weren't there, he repeated. Hmm. You always knew how to reach me, John would reply evenly to each of these outbursts. There was no doubt in my mind watching those two that George's anger with John had been accumulating for years. It was exactly the kind of situation that John usually ran from. But I could see in that moment that he loved George enough to remain calm and still as George drilled away at him. George said that repeatedly in the past he had sung what John wanted him to sing, said what John wanted him to say. Mm. Because John wanted it, George had gone along with the decision to go with Alan Klein. Mm -hmm. In the nearly four years since, John had virtually ignored him, a fact that pained George deeply. Mm -hmm. George's voice grew even more harsh as he blasted John for his sudden appearance as if out of nowhere to offer an evening's worth of help. Mm -hmm. Yet again, George said furiously, I did everything you said, but you weren't there. Damn. Suddenly, he leveled his gaze at John. You know, John, he snarled. I want to see your eyes. I can't see your eyes. John was wearing sunglasses. He reached up and quickly took them off and put them on his regular glasses. He was willing to do anything to pacify George, but the gesture was not enough. It looked as though George was going to slap John. (laughs) Wow. Dear. I wish someone had at some point. He needed it. (laughs) I still can't see your eyes. Suddenly, he reached over, yanked. John's glasses off his face and dashed them to the floor. Wow. His face was a mask of fury and contempt I'd never seen an angrier man. George's anger even paralyzed John. I knew how panicky John became when he could not see. I expected him to jump up and hit George. I was terrified that George might be satisfied only by a fist fight. Yet miraculously, John stayed calm. There was a long silence. Then George returned to the basic theme of his anger, but I could see that the worst moment had passed. Mm-hmm. May writes, the next day we saw George and everything was fine. As soon as George saw John, he hugged and kissed him and said, please forgive me. I wasn't feeling well last night. I didn't mean to get upset. Hmm. It was as if the previous night had not occurred. (laughs) Yet again, I realized how unpredictable they all were. (laughs) Wow. I did everything you said. Wow. Like every time I've read that quote, that just hits me in the solar plexus. He did everything he said, up to and including joining him on this tirade that he yeah. went on against Paul. Yeah. I mean, it's there's a lot in, I mean, yeah, there's a lot in that. And what did he have to show for it? That's right. There wasn't really a real relationship to speak of anymore between him and John. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's... <laughs> that's sad. <laughs> so the thing is, like, knowing all of that, like, I do feel kind of bad for george you yeah. know like i mean i like i feel bad that like he got played by john yeah. and mm-hmm. it was like in the worst possible way he did it just to get closer to john or just to like 
to be sort of elevated. Like he, it's almost like he did it to compete with Paul. Yeah. And it didn't work, you know? Mm -mm. And it's like, that's so pathetic and sad to me. And at what cost to him and Paul's friendship? It's like, why did you choose John? Yeah. That's on you, dude. Right. Uh, You know, that's on you. Mm -hmm. Like, did you really think John was the one who was going to be there for you? Right. Did John have a track record of being reliable? I mean, like, again, you know, to the point that, like, Paul wasn't appreciating him as a musician or a person or whatever. Like, I, I, you know, I get that. I'm sympathetic to that. I'm not saying Paul was an angel or anything. Um, I mean, it's, it's one thing to be like, you know what? Fuck both of you. I'm out. Right. But, like, to choose one against the other, that's not going to end well. Mm-mm. And also, it's like, if the whole issue is that the two of them, Paul and John are always going to choose each other. Right. It, you're, this is a fool's errand right here. Yeah. <laughs> if you, really, like, if, if you're choosing one of them to go against the other, it's not going to happen. And, like, John proved that. Mm-hmm over time so on the one hand i i feel bad because he got sort of fucked over by john and then he sacrificed his relationship with paul in order to do it so he ends up with nothing yeah which album is this this was on the abbey road your george foremost beetle expert i'm not an expert on George and Paul by any means um, and I'm no I'm no George Harrison expert in general <laughs> so I might be talking a bit out of turn here but it seems like in the anthology just as an observer you know yeah it seems to me that the resentment is fairly one-sided on yeah. George's part which again I'm not a shrink but that does indicate to me that the hurt feelings are George's rather than Paul's yeah Uh, It's really apparent to me when I'm watching the anthology footage, and I really also think it's not just toward Paul. I think it's towards John and Paul. It's just that, unfortunately, Paul is the only one left who's still, you know, who's still alive and still around to bear the brunt of that resentment. You know, somebody had said, I forgot who it was who was observing at that time, and had said that they were doing interviews, and at some point... Paul had turned to George and said, did you really feel that way? I didn't know that. And George was yeah. like, yeah, of course I felt that, you know, like they just don't talk like that. So right. again, it's, it's not about Paul being an angel or anything. Yeah. You know, I mean, of course I'm sure from George's perspective, even at his old, old age, <laughs> even <laughs> as his, uh, at his mature age of 50, whatever, he still was thinking like, you know, Paul has, he wants to be friends, but he's never taken responsibility for the hurt that he caused me. I'm sure he feels that way. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I'm not getting in the middle of whatever their friendship stuff is, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but like, whatever it is, it, it seems like George is the, is the hurt party, not yeah. Paul. That's right. what I'm saying. Yeah. Paul just wants to sort of forgive and forget. Like, he's like, let's just move on. But, right. you know. Or he's just unaware of the scope of what George is feeling because they never talk about it. Well, I think it's that on, yeah. on all of their parts. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't think Paul appreciates how much he means to either of them. Yeah. 
So I think that's a big sticking point with both John and George. Again, I don't know these guys, so some of this is just speculation and psychobabble or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, like, when you hear them complain about Paul, it's like Paul is insensitive and he kind of doesn't appreciate how much he's affecting everybody. You know, he's just sort of going along doing his thing. And meanwhile, it's like that really hurt a lot. Mm -hmm. But Paul doesn't think that anyone's even spending five seconds to think about him. So, yeah. Yeah. He doesn't get how much he means to the other guys to where his his actions would have such an impact on their feelings. Exactly. Again, this is just my sort of impression. Yeah. When I'm watching Anthology... Paul seems to be kind of making an effort to engage with George much more than vice versa. Mm. Uh, But that's not to say I don't notice some little moments where George really lets his guard down. And you can see that he is enjoying enjoying being with those guys. And you can see how much he loves Paul and Ringo. Yeah. Well, I think they were, you know, again, it's like these guys, they were friends for like, since they were little children. Yeah. I always say that Bramwell was the one who told that story about he used to play with Paul and George, like yeah. play with them, like mm-hmm. play cars with them or, you know, whatever. Yeah, like, like little, little kid stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because they <laughs> like, were like tweens at that age. Yes. Like. Right. Yeah. Like they were little kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I definitely think they were friends up until till the moment that. George died, like, his entire life. They re- mm-hmm. they remained friends. They were just friends that had a lot of shit between them, you know? Yeah, <laughs> right. A, right? They had, they had a bunch of, like, unresolved friend issues or whatever. It's so, not that so uncommon. Do, so do a lot of people. Yeah. So do a lot of siblings, you know? Right. At the beginning, when I joined, Paul yeah. was the only one who would sleep with me. Well, there was actually <laughs> a little bit of a, a, a thing to that. I, I was never very prejudiced. Yeah. No, I thought that was, was the it? best move, really, because when you joined and you were like the new fellow and sure. nobody, and I thought, well, if I hang out with you, then they'll all be like, you know, so I thought it'd be good to, you know. Put Paul with him. Yes, yeah. because, <laughs> because, because then, then it would be, be all right then. George says, if I hang out with you, then John and Paul will be all like, what? What does that mean? Ah, I feel like, I think his intention behind introducing Ringo into the group in that way was to keep John and Paul from being their own unit and keep George and Ringo from being their own unit and kind of avoid a clannishness of sorts. Yeah, I think so too. I think that like, even though he doesn't actually follow the thought through with words, it's just kind of intimate. I think like everybody, when they see that and hear that in the anthology, I think we all kind of intuitively know what he means, mm-hmm. which is that, like, yeah, as you said, John and Paul, if left to their own devices, will just be clannish, mm-hmm. even more so than they already are, and then it'll just be a them versus us. Yeah, time. yeah, you've got two versus two going on. Yeah, which again goes back to the root problem that George is constantly <laughs> trying to convey, and which none of the books, of course acknowledge because to the jean jackets john and paul couldn't stand each other 
Yeah, yeah, they hated each other so much. But yeah, it, to me, I always laugh when I see that quote or when I hear things that are like it because it's like we had to separate them to keep them from being too close. Yeah, seri- <laughs> like, seriously, keep them from leaving us out of things. Yes, George is like <laughs> we actually had a literal strategy <laughs> that I insisted upon. <laughs> Here's John in an interview with Andy Peebles in 1980 for the BBC, explaining how he was withdrawing from Paul when he wrote How Do You Sleep? I felt resentment, so I used that situation the same as I used withdrawing from heroin to write cold turkey. I used my resentment and withdrawing from Paul and the Beatles and the relationship with Paul to write How Do You Sleep? So John's a little hyper during this interview. Oh, yeah. You know, partially I think he's just being kind of pithy, but he did, he did compare Paul to heroin. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He literally says right after withdrawing from Paul, and then he says withdrawing from the Beatles, the relationship with Paul. But I do find it funny, actually, that it's Paul and the Beatles, and then he compartmentalizes that relationship separate from Paul and the Beatles. Yes. And is like withdrawing from both of those things again, Mm -hmm. you know really indicating that it was a a big deal. Yeah, it wasn't the way it's framed where he's like, I'm just bored and I'm done with this and I have to get out of here because I'm not getting my way. Bye. You know, I always kind of thought about the idea of like, what if the Beatles had just been allowed to take a break from each other? And I wonder if that would have been a thing they could do. Like if they'd be able to take a break and pursue separate projects and then come back together when they were ready. Do you think that would have been a plausible thing for that band? I think it was John saying, I want a divorce. And then that was it. It was done at that point. Yeah. I mean, you can't take that back. I think that's (laughs) what it boils down to. Even if he tried to. Oh, he wanted to. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think for sure. I mean, I think he said it to hurt Paul and to see if he could hurt Paul anymore and to get a reaction and he got a reaction. Uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, those aren't, you know, that's not something you say just to fuck with somebody. And if you, if it is something you say to fuck with somebody, then, then run, you better leave that person. Right. Yeah. You can't just like wave that around like a nuke to threaten somebody to do what you want them to do. Yeah. Yeah. And he and Paul had already been fucked with enough at that point that right. I think, you know, thank God he thank God he followed through and was like, all right, then you want a divorce, you're going to get one. Right. Yeah. I'm proud of him. I am, too. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I actually do wonder if because, uh, I mean, a lot of people have floated the idea that, like, well, you know, because of what happened to the Beatles, bands do take breaks now. And that's valid. You know, I oh, think a yeah. lot of bands look they back. They should. The, you know, and they're like, oh, we don't want that to happen to our band. We still like working with each other. Well, you know, let's fuck off for two years and do other projects and then see where we're at. And actually, like, some um, recording contracts have a clause in them saying, like, you guys have to see group therapy counselors or mediators or whatever like i think metallica did group therapy at one point um no i i think the error is comparing 
the Beatles to other bands, though. I think so, too. They, they're not a normal band. It's, they, I think that's yeah. absolutely what it is. They're, yeah. not a, they're not a normal... They're not a band. I mean, yeah. in the traditional way that you think of a band. Like, they're not that's four true. guys who play with each other. Right. That's true. Yeah. They're, they're a family. And John mm-hmm. and Paul are literally like a couple. Yeah. So, in fact, Paul's quote, when he leaves in, in April... Um, he says, I hate this trial separation because it's not working. And John said he wanted a divorce. So, okay, I want to give him that divorce. Yep. I mean, he just like bluntly just spelled it out. He's just like, all right, well then if, if we're done, then we're done. Right. Give me the papers and let me sign them and let's move on. And that's how it had to be for them. I don't think, you know, they just weren't a normal, you know, a normal band. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would definitely recommend that they just take a break. What's the problem? Yeah. I mean, what's the problem, yeah. right? But yeah, right, but they, not they, the Beatles. They don't, well, they don't have a situation where they can just see other people and they're cool with it. Like, John right. and Paul are not cool with it. No, they're not. No, they're, <laughs> they're not okay They're with not it. a poly couple. They are not. <laughs> they are. And so that's why I think that it, it wouldn't have worked. And it didn't yeah. work. I mean, it, it like, you know, I mean, John did side projects with Yoko so he was doing them you know yeah true but like how how disruptive was it just for Paul to you know when Paul does a side project in 1966 and he does the family way soundtrack it's like John's carrying that around oh yeah for years and years Mm -hmm. rest of his life really yeah exactly to the end of his life he's still carrying around the fact that like that, like, Paul talked to Mal and Neil about lyrics for Eleanor Rigby. Like, he's still yeah. holding a grudge about that. Oh, yeah. And what was the other one? There was some other one. Whatever it was. Or, like, recording Why Don't We Do It in the Road without him. I mean... Oh, yeah, it was it, Why Don't We Do It in the Road. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. if these guys can't even go into another room without each other, without major issues because it's not gonna work yeah like i think george would have been okay with it because george said as much himself but i don't think john and paul would have been able to do it yeah but as he put it it was like george came back from what he'd been like hanging out in in woodstock with like bob dylan and the band or something yep that was exactly it yeah, and he comes back to the shit show of the Beatles, and he's like, oh, and he, God, I forgot what it's like to be with these same fucking assholes I've been looking at for, for the past ten years. Like, yeah. I'm so sick of your faces. Like, and, oh, and relegated to little brother status again. Yes. After like, he'd been, re- you know, he was like a rock god when he was with Bob Dylan and mm-hmm. the band. You know, they were, like, revering him and his musicianship. And now and he's, he's like, yeah, like I really feel like a peer. Ignored. Yeah, exactly. I would have quit, too. Right. Oh, I don't blame him at all. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'd never actually considered before that George may have been concerned about how attached John was to Paul or how attached Paul was to John, maybe, as well. Uh, but now that you bring that up, I can totally see that. I think there was an, you know, it's obvious there was an enmeshment happening that wasn't exactly healthy. And I think George had eyes and a brain, and understood what was going on. Oh, yeah. I think it's super transparent, actually. Right. I, mean, I mean, we laid it out pretty clearly. I don't, I mean, I don't know. Maybe There's, it's either a, a case of, like, people can't do the... The, the detective the, work. But yeah, it's like people just haven't done the detective work, or they just can't connect dots. Like, Or maybe it's just, again, as we had 
mentioned before, it's like this culture of nerds who write these Beatle narratives where it's just like yeah. they don't they're they're their point of view is so clouded by like they think John is like an untouchable god of coolness who is always in total control of everything around him right right and who doesn't have any vulnerability or neediness which is ins- yeah. absolute insanity and and right. so far from the truth like literally everybody who knows him like how yeah. many how many times do you <laughs> do you John's have to- massive insecurity and fear of abandonment like it's is so, so it's, obvious, it's so obvious, established, <clears throat> and yet the narratives just refuse. They just mm-hmm. refuse to accept it. So yeah, I don't know if it, I. I'm assuming it's like a sort of a willful ignorance. I think um, it is. It makes sense when you lay it out, and when you sort of examine like the human behavior involved. But like apply some basic psychology to this stuff. Right. It's not that difficult to to parse. Yeah. And I think all of your hypotheses that we've talked about here make George's behavior make a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. And I really wish that people would think a bit harder when it comes to this situation and piece the evidence together. Because to well, me, it's a combination of what you said and also like a neglected younger brother who just mm-hmm. totally thirsted for both older brother's approval, which he yes. never got. He figured yes. he could maybe get a little taste of it by doing his, you know, doing one sibling's bidding against the other. Yes. And unfortunately for him and for Paul, it backfired spectacularly as he ultimately did not gain the older brother's approval and his other friendship suffered immensely from it. And like the thing is, is that. It doesn't seem, again, I don't know these guys, but it doesn't seem to me that, that Paul was like, all right, well, then fuck you. You're out. You're dead no. to me. No, no, he never which, did that. Which would be, a, I mean, you couldn't really blame him for saying that to any of them after that. Right. right? As soon as that contract <laughs> yeah. is, is signed and we're all separated legally. Like, fuck now, off forever fuck now. Fuck you, you're dead to me. Right. Like, he didn't say that. He was just kind of like, that's yeah, all good. That still sort of condescending older brother kind of like, you know, I get it. But it's like, no, Paul, you don't get it. You know, it's like he's still mad. Now he's mad that, like, Paul isn't mad. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's like, like, you're supposed to get mad at me. Right. I I feel like George is like, you don't even fucking care. Like, you are not, not even listening. Like, you don't even give a shit. Okay, George and Paul are best friends until... Paul meets John and then Mm. right and then John and Paul become the center of each other's universe but like from George's perspective it's like he's he's instantly demoted I mean we know that we do know and that had to be really kind of hard for George yeah and I mean Paul brings him into the band so it's not as if he's like go away George you can't be friends with John he's not like that at all he's like join the band this is my friend George let's bring him into the band so it's not like Paul did anything wrong, but, you know, you can see how a resentment would form with George because before John came into the picture, George and Paul were equals, right? Yeah. They were best friends. And then as soon as John comes in and Paul and John become the Nurk twins, mm-hmm. George is like Paul's friend. So he's never on that level with John. Like he's always, he's always just like a friend of a friend. Yeah. Which I'm not saying that they didn't become 
for real friends later. Yeah. John and Paul have the songwriting thing that George isn't a part of, and like. Yeah. Plus, it's they're t- just like intensely linked. This crazy chemistry they have from the beginning. And they know it, and they're not yeah. shy about it. No. You know, it's like they're yeah. not shy about letting everybody else know about it. Right. right? Yeah. So it's like, and, and George doesn't really fault John for it, because John was never... It's not like John and George were friends, and then Paul came along, and John demoted George. That's this, what Paul yeah. did. Yeah. So he has a resentment of Paul that he doesn't have for John, because when he met John, Paul was already John's best friend. So how it's like how complicated is that? You know, it's like yeah. <laughs> if you're gonna if you're gonna talk about the Beatles and write books about the Beatles and shit, you need to take all that into consideration. Oh my god, it's yes, it's complicated. It's real complicated. These these guys, they're like, well, why would anybody love Paul? Of course, I didn't love Paul. It's like I'm, I hate to break this to you, but I think everybody loves Paul. Like yeah. everybody is, everybody's trying to get Paul's love. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying Paul doesn't love anyone, but everybody complains about not getting enough, mm-hmm. not getting enough from him. I wanted to bring up the fact that not everybody in the room who witnessed the genesis of this song was happy about it. Uh, one particular person who had a big problem with it was Ringo. And I remember John once saying that if Ringo was on your side, you knew you were right. But in this case, Ringo was definitely not on John's side. Here's an excerpt from Peter Doggett's book, You Never Give Me Your Money. On May 22nd, 1971, Lennon began to record a song entitled How Do You Sleep? Across three acerbic verses, Lennon mutilated McCartney's reputation, his lifestyle, his music, and, ironically given Lennon's own mother-lover complex, his dependence on his wife. Underground journalist Felix Dennis watched the session. Quote, I remember Ringo getting more and more upset by this. I have a clear memory of him saying, that's enough, John. Lennon and Ono competed to come up with the most insulting lines, Dennis said. So there was an interview conducted on the movie set of Blind Man, where uh, both Ringo and Alan Klein made some appearances in that movie. I'm just going to read a little, it's from Playboy actually, it's uh, a candid conversation with the embattled manager of the Beatles, it's from November 1971, interviewed by a guy named uh, Craig Vetter. And they were just talking about, like, the state of the Beatles yeah, the state of the divorce and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Klein was just kind of, kind of say, like, ah, I don't think they'll ever get back together. He was hesitant about that. And then Ringo kind of interjected by saying, quote, You must say yes, Alan, because there's no reason we shouldn't all play together again if we wanted to. And then he made a point of saying, but no silly DJs go putting it out that we're thinking of get, getting together because we're not. Still, there's nothing stopping us if we ever want to. And then it goes on to say that Ringo talked about his first face-to-face meeting with Paul in many months on a plane on the way to Mick Jagger's wedding. And he said, quote, I love Paul, you know, I really do. Even Klein in Western gear a prop holster and six gun on his waist, the toughest, fastest wheeler dealer in town, any town, sat there stuttering a moment when Ringo was finished. The drummer's eyes were moist. 
so this is Ringo in November of 1971, which is shortly after Imagine has come out and like tearing up on the set of his movie. Yeah. Saying that he loves Paul, you know. He did, yeah. And I'm sure he's just like lamenting that things have gotten to the point where they're at. Right. And, and basically all Ringo did was sign with Klein. So what I've noticed in Beatles discourse in particular is that sometimes people who've gained the power within the fandom to create narratives decide to put forth kind of a thesis that one Beatle must have hated another. And on its face, it really is a tactic to elevate this person's favorite while denigrating their less favorite. All human beings have to work through some level of personal bias, right? No matter what the topic is they're discussing. And we know people like to pick their favorite, especially from the Beatles. But what we should always take into account is that all four of the Beatles loved each other, and all of the Beatles were a family, and family relationships are almost never zero-sum. How close are you? We've had reports that you're not as close as you used to be, and that the Beatles aren't as rich as everyone thought they were, and yeah, that they might true. have to close down Apple. Yes, well, that's How true that's, is this? Ring well, up? should we take them one at a time? Yes. <laughs> All right, what was the first one? <laughs> are you as close? Uh, yes. With, you know, there's that famous old saying, you always hurt the one you love. And we all love each other, and we all know that, but we still sort of hurt each other occasionally, you know, where we just misunderstand each other. And we go off, you know, and it builds up to something bigger than it ever was, and then we have to come down to it and get it over with, you know, and sort it out. And so we're still really very close people. What's the second one? Because the trees don't 